You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So first, we will have to do a lot of unpacking with the narrative. Um, That is the nature of this text. Um, And and so last week, we'll we'll recap what happened. Um, David was in his palace in Jerusalem, and the text the, the first verse in the text that we read last week that said that that was a time in which kings were known to go out with their soldiers in battle, but David, the king of Israel, stayed home and sent someone else to lead his people into battle. And, and so David, right off the bat, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and for all of us in this room, we know that that can lead to problems. But David wasn't just failing to lead his people into battle Moreover, he became overwhelmed by lust and desire. He abused his power and took another man's wife into his palace to lay with her. She became pregnant, and so David, continuing to fall into darker and darker places, decided the best thing to do would be to have her husband killed so it might cover up his sin. And then at the end of last week's text, God sends to David a man named Nathan who is a prophet of God. And and Nathan tells David that that a sword of division will enter his house and will never depart. And, And that the things that David did in secret would be done in public. And then Nathan ends his discourse of telling David what is going to happen to him by saying, but you will not die. God has not forgotten his promise to you. And so we saw in this text that no matter how dark David's sin was, there was grace. But in this text this week, we've come to a place where David is crossing over the Jordan River, coming back to Jerusalem from exile. And the majority of his people reject him as king and leave him. And we have to ask the question, what happened in between? What happened in between Nathan visiting David after he sinned and slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband? And this week? And the answer is, a lot happened. See, between last week and this week, we've actually glossed over 21 years of Israel's history. And those 21 years could be quickly summed up in this. Things went really bad for David. Things went really bad for David because of David's sin. The first thing that happened, which Nathan told David would happen, is that the son conceived as a result of his sin and committing adultery with Bathsheba would die. And he did. His baby died. And then turmoil continues to enter into David's home. One of his sons, Amnon, finds his half-sister Tamar to be beautiful and decides that he will, like his father, take advantage of her sexually. And then one of David's other sons, Absalom, who becomes a big figure throughout 2 Samuel, rises up and, and he hates his brother Amnon for what he did to his sister Tamar, and so he kills him. And so within one generation, David's sons have become like their father. Sexual perversion. And murder are the theme of the royal household. Absalom, after killing his brother Amnon, flees from Jerusalem. 
in fear of his father's wrath. And after a couple of years, he comes back and finds his father David ready to forgive him. And we're told that Absalom is a handsome man, the most handsome man in Israel. And he's a charming man. And his intentions in coming back to the city where his father lives were not good. He begins charming the people and telling them lies. He begins telling the people of Israel that David doesn't care about them. And eventually, he wins over the hearts of the men of Israel. And he sends messengers throughout the whole country that say, tell the people of Israel that Absalom is now their king. So David has two sons die. One of his sons rape his daughter. One of his sons kill another one of his sons. And then the very son that killed one of his sons has now usurped his throne. Finally, David needs to quell the rebellion of his son. And so he sends his army out to go against the men whom Absalom has gathered. But he gives his commander a specific order and that is do not deal harshly with my son Absalom. David couldn't stand to have yet another one of his sons be killed. Yet, as the story seems to go, David's commander doesn't listen to him. And he kills Absalom. And where we find ourselves in the story is this has taken place over 21 years. And in this time, Absalom when he gained power, sent word to Jerusalem that he was coming to overthrow the throne. And David did what a good king would do, which was probably the first time in decades he had done so, and he fled Jerusalem. Knowing that if he just gave the palace over to his son, that Absalom's men would not kill all the people in Jerusalem. So David goes into exile east of Jerusalem, that his people might be spared. And where we are in the text today is David returning from this exile. He returns from exile only to find that after all that has befell him, after all of this sorrow and destruction and death, tens of thousands of his men have died, three of his sons, a daughter raped. And he returns, and as he crosses over onto the west bank of the Jordan River to head toward Jerusalem, a man named Sheba rises up. It says that there was a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjaminite, which is the tribe that Saul, the former king, was from. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. The men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So after all of this, David has regained his throne only to come back toward the city where God dwells in the temple to find that yet again his people have rejected him. And they leave. So what do we make of this? 
What do we make of this story? Well, the first thing that we should learn from this account, we learned last week. That David was forgiven and God was faithful to his covenant. And so what we can know is that really no matter how far we go into our sinful desires, for those of us who are in covenant relationship with God through Jesus cannot outpace God's grace. We can't go so far that we will be condemned. Nathan said to Samuel, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Some of you are in the room are hearing that and you're thinking, Cole, you say that, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know the way my thoughts work. You don't know the deep desires of my heart and how I act them out in secret. God couldn't forgive me. And I say to you, have you been listening to this story? I don't know that there's anyone in the room. In fact, I would wager a large sum of money that there's nobody in this room who in their desire rejected their responsibilities, allowed lust to overcome them, committed adultery, killed the husband of the woman whom they committed adultery with. I don't think you can top that. And even so, God's grace was present for David. We can't go so far that God's grace for us runs out. But the second thing that we have to learn from this is that though our sin doesn't condemn us to death, it has serious consequences in life. See, David wasn't condemned to death. He He wasn't abandoned from this promise that God had made him back in chapter 7 when God told David, through you I will establish a throne that will last forever. He didn't abandon that promise. But there were serious consequences brought about by the God of the universe in the life of David as a result of his sin. As a result of David's unchecked sin, his desire to cover his tracks, his desire to make himself the king of the universe when he knew well that God was. He saw death and destruction enter his household that extended to his kingdom for decades. So so Christian in the room this morning, you can't sin so much that God will not forgive you, but don't allow that to be a license to walk into sin. Because you can sin so much that you destroy your marriage. You can sin so much that you destroy all of the relationships in your life. You can sin so much that you would destroy this local church body. You can sin so much and leave your sin unchecked that you lose your career. Does that mean that God's grace has run out for you now? No, it doesn't. In fact, that is God's grace for you. See, the third thing that we learn from this text is that our God is one who has a jealous love for His people. 
God is jealous for our love and for our devotion. In fact, the primary purpose of God's relationship with his people is that his name would be made great, that his glory would be manifest, that his praises would be sung. And when we, as God's people, fail to give him glory through obedience and self-sacrifice, through faithful service, humble prayer, our God will bring about temporary destruction in our life so that he doesn't have to bring about eternal destruction in our life. See, for David, it was God's grace that his family fell apart. It was God's grace that his kingdom turned against him. It was God's grace that he was sent out of the city where God's presence dwelled into the eastern wilderness for decades. That was God's grace to David. It was God's grace because in that process, David was restored to understanding that there is one king and it's not David. It was in that process that David was restored to understanding that all that he could ever have, he had before his sin. God had given him a kingdom. He had given him his presence. He had given him a family. It was God's grace to bring about destruction in David's life. And church, I'm convinced that if David were here this morning, that he would warn those of you who have been teetering on the edge too close to the things that you sinfully desire to flee it. See, if David were here this morning, he would tell you that that the church lives in a time of war and in a time for the kingdom to be established. And if you're not out on the battlefield and you stay at home, that destruction is surely coming. David were here this morning, he would tell you that though these things that you look at and that seem beautiful, that you desire, that promise pleasure, are nothing in comparison to what you have in the security and in the rest and in the presence of God through obedience. If David were here this morning, church, he would probably shout to you, Don't go on the roof when you know the women are bathing in plain sight. Don't even go there. It's not worth it. Only death is there. Only sorrow. Only years of struggle and strife and pain. If David were here this morning, he would tell you that Though you might think you are the king, you're not a very good king, but there is a very good king and you should trust him. David would tell you that although God's discipline and jealousy for your affection may hurt for the moment, or maybe for the year, or maybe for the decades, but it's worth it. It's worth it to sit in God's true presence. To experience His true rest and His true blessing for eternity. Even the Apostle Paul would tell us that that God disciplines 
His true children. And that if we can walk into sin without experiencing the discipline of God, then we should be afraid that maybe we're not even His children. But what we should also take from that is that it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. But then we have to ask, how do we understand what is happening in in the story of the people of Israel? Because all throughout this sermon series, we've not understood ourselves primarily in relationship to David. We've understood ourselves primarily in relationship to the people of Israel. And, And to really understand how this ties in we have to think about covenant because because otherwise we will see a sinful David who brings about destruction and division in his kingdom and we will begin to think that maybe that's what Jesus has done. If David is a prefigure to Jesus, maybe, maybe Jesus is sinful and destructive or maybe that this analogy just doesn't hold true because we know that's not the way that Jesus is. But we have to understand that God has always throughout human history, beginning in the Garden of Eden, primarily related to His people through covenants. And these covenants are promises that God enters into with His people that involve blessings of God, that involve the presence and rest of God. But there are consequences when covenants are broken. And all of these covenants throughout human history have always had a human representative. A covenant head, if you will. Beginning with Adam, who was the covenant representative for all of the new creation. And and in this covenant relationship, there was a simple thing. God said, you can dwell in my presence in the garden and have all of the benefits therein. Just don't eat of the forbidden fruit. And Adam was overcome by desire and he ate of the fruit with his wife and what happened? They were cast east of the Garden of Eden into exile. And we can understand David more now that we know about Adam because David was the covenant representative for the people of Israel. He was the king over them. And so as David goes, so does the kingdom. That's the old adage, as the king goes, so does the kingdom. And David was representing Israel, and like his father Adam, he chose the forbidden fruit. Like his father Adam, he was cast east, out of Jerusalem where the presence of God dwelt. But unlike his father Adam, he was allowed return from this exile. He eventually came back into the presence of God in Jerusalem. And as kind of a side note, we think about these covenant communities with these covenant representatives, Adam representing all of mankind, David representing all of God's people of Israel. And in the church, we have two primary covenant communities that we observe, local churches and families, primarily marriages. And we would do well, husbands and pastors, to recognize that we are covenant representatives for these communities. 
we would do well to recognize the results that Adam and David's sin had on the communities that they were over. See, there is no quicker way for a marriage to be destroyed than through the serious moral failure of a husband. There's no quicker way for a local church body to be destroyed than the serious moral failure of her pastors. And so, we ought to soberly look at this and pray for husbands and pastors. Husbands and pastors, we ought to not live like Adam and David trying to cover up our shame and our sins so that it builds and builds and builds. But we ought to live radically in the light, confessing regularly, knowing that God's grace is for us, that we don't leave these things unchecked. Husbands, God's expectation of you is not perfection. So your family won't be destroyed just because you're not perfect. His expectation of you is that you walk in the light. That you recognize that He is King and that your sin is serious. But that His grace is more serious still. So pray for husbands and pastors. But we go back to this theme of covenant representation. And we've seen that David was dwelling in Jerusalem where the presence of God was. His sin led him into exile away from the presence of God and eventually he returned to find a kingdom divided against him. He still had the promises of God, but but the people were divided against him because the covenant representative for the people of God was not being recognized as such. See, a man, Sheba, stood up, and the text says that he was a worthless man, and and he stands up and he convinces ten of the twelve tribes of Israel upon David's return from exile that they have nothing to gain in following David as their king. There's no portion for us in David. Let's establish for ourselves our own kingdom. But there were a faithful few. The men of Judah were the faithful few. These two southern tribes of Israel looked at David and they said, we know that he is our true king. And they followed him into Jerusalem. And so for weeks upon weeks and months, we've been talking about how David, in his role as the king of the people of Israel, is a foreshadowing and a prefigure and a type of the future king to come in Jesus. But Jesus didn't have this heinous sin that he committed. Jesus didn't fail the covenant people. But Jesus much like David, was where the dwelling place of God was. And much like David, division rose about among him. Rose about because of him. And this division 
led the people to reject Jesus. And like David, Jesus was exiled outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem. But when David did it, he was bearing the weight of his own sin. But when Jesus did it, he was bearing the weight of all of our sin. And the exile of Jesus was different than the exile of David because the prophet told David, you shall not die. But he told David, you shall not die because the prophet knew that there would come a king who would be exiled on behalf of all the people of God who would die in their place. See, nobody understands the consequences of our sin quite like our Lord Jesus. Because though we are disciplined as a result of it, he was punished and exiled, having the presence of God forsaken among him. But like David, Jesus returned from exile. Although David returned from exile as a failed king in old age, having lost his luster for leadership, having seen his family and kingdom destroyed by his sin, Jesus returned from exile as a victorious king, risen from death, victorious over Satan, sin, and death, victorious over being Faithful to all of the covenant promises that Adam and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Noah and David failed to be faithful for Jesus was faithful. Never again would the people of God be exiled because the victorious king was exiled in their place. Never again would God remove his presence from his people because through the victorious king in Jesus, God has given his presence to dwell among his people. See, Jesus is is the truer son where in the books of Samuel, David is described as the true son of Saul. The true king, Jesus is the truer son. He's the truer king. He is the king that guarantees that all the promises God has made to his people throughout history have come true and will continue to be true. That God will be to his people a God and that he will dwell among him, among them, giving his very spirit to them. His very spirit to empower them in those moments when they're tempted to go onto the roof of desire to beckon them home. To warn them that there's nothing good there for them. And David returned to Jerusalem from exile to a kingdom divided against him. The majority of the people of Israel upon the return of David thought that he was not their king, that there was nothing to be gained in following him. And similarly, when Jesus returned from his exile and glorious resurrection, the majority of the people of Israel had thoroughly rejected him as king. But like David, there were a faithful few. A faithful few who confessed, Jesus, we know that you're the Christ. We've seen you risen from the grave. 
And in, in this text in Samuel, the tension that is built is this fear that maybe God's promise to David to establish his throne forever is gone. But in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the faithful few putting their hope in him, Jesus has a kingdom that will last forever and that is rapidly expanding. See, 2,000 years ago, there were about 100 people who trusted in Jesus. And now we're on the other side of the world with thousands upon thousands and millions of people worshiping Him as Lord because He's the true King and in His kingdom, God's presence dwells. In His kingdom, there is rest. But we, like the people of Israel this morning, have a choice to make. We can look at Jesus and his kingship and decide that there is nothing to be gained for me in following him. I'll establish my kingdom elsewhere. I know that that what Jesus demands of me will be hard and I could have it easier somewhere else. And you can be like the worthless men who reject Jesus as king. Or you can be like the people of Judah, who knew David to be their true king and followed him across the Jordan River into the city of Jerusalem where the presence and rest of God were. This morning we really have a choice. We can choose for ourselves an exile that Jesus experienced so that we don't have to. Or we can choose for ourselves a kingdom. A kingdom full of the love and grace and presence and rest of God. A kingdom that will one day cover the earth and the universe as the waters cover the sea. We can choose to follow the true king into a kingdom that will truly have no end. And for eternity, we can feast with our king at his banquet table. Though crippled like Mephibosheth, we can be seated with the king. And so this morning, we will prepare the table. The king's table. The king's table where in his broken body and shed blood, the fullness of his glory is revealed and we're united to him. Food that will sustain us forever. Drink that will quench our soul's deepest thirst. Or we can dine elsewhere but I would invite you to trust in the true king. Let's pray. Father, you are our father. And you reign in power and love and we are in awe of you. We're in awe of you, Father, because you have sent a son to experience the depths of exile and rejection and shame so that we could experience your presence and rest. I pray that you would call people in the room this morning who have yet to trust in you, who who you have yet to reveal Jesus as the true king, 
that by your Spirit you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Ears to hear that, that you offer them love, that you offer them sustenance, that you offer them your very presence, you offer them rest, and would we come and dine at your table. I pray that by the power of the Spirit that you would keep us individually and corporately from unchecked sin that would bring about destruction. Not only so that we could experience the joy of obedience and the joy of your presence and rest, but so that we can truly be a united people in this neighborhood that your glory might go forth and that more and more people would come to dine at your table. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.